You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Nearly 100,000 ICS services exposed to the internet. Bunny loader in the C2C market. Phantom hacker scams and API risks. Cybersecurity attitudes and behaviors. Homeland Security IG finds flaws in TSA pipeline security programs and privacy issues with CBP, ICE, and USSS's use of commercial telemetry. Kiev prepares for Russian attacks on Ukraine's power grid. Ben Yellen on the Department of Commerce placing guardrails on semiconductor companies. As part of our sponsored Industry Voices segment, Dave Bittner sits down with Nick Ascoli, founder and CTO at Fortress, to discuss the last year in data leaks. And Russian disinformation is expected to take aim at undermining U.S. support for Ukraine. I'm Trey Hester, filling in for Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Tuesday, October 3rd, 2023. BitSight has identified nearly 100,000 industrial control systems exposed to the internet, particularly in the education, technology, government, politics, and business sectors. However, the researchers note that overall there's been a steady decline in the internet-exposed ICS services since 2019. So in some respects, this is actually a good news story. BitSight adds, quote, Exposed systems and devices communicating via the Modbus and S7 protocols are more common in June 2023 than before, with the former increasing in prevalence from 2020 and the latter more recently from mid-2022. However, exposed industrial control systems communicating via Niagara Fox have been trending downward since roughly 2021. Organizations should be aware of these changes in prevalence to inform their OT and ICS security strategies. End quote. Zscaler is tracking a new malware-as-a-service offering called Bunny Loader that's being sold on underground forums for a one-time price of $250. The malware is designed to steal information related to web browsers, cryptocurrency wallets, VPNs, and much more. Bunny Loader targets cryptocurrency wallets for Bitcoin, Monero, Ethereum, Litecoin, Dogecoin, Zcash, and Tether. The researchers note that the malware has been under rapid development since the initial release on September 4th. 
the FBI has warned of an increase in phantom hacker scams targeting senior citizens. This phantom hacker scam is an evolution of more general tech support scams, layering imposter tech support, financial institution, and government personas to enhance the trust victims place in the scammers and identify the most lucrative accounts to target. Victims often suffer loss of entire banking, savings, retirement, or investment accounts under the guise of protecting their assets. The Bureau says victims have lost over $542 million to tech support scams in the first half of 2023, with 66% of these losses from victims over 60 years old. BreachLock has published an article for the Hacker News looking at cybersecurity risk associated with APIs. BreachLock states, quote, The 2023 reports indicate cyber attacks targeting APIs have jumped 137%, with healthcare and manufacturing seen as prime targets by attackers. Attackers are especially interested in the recent influx of new devices under the Internet of Medical Things and API ecosystem that has supported the provision of more accessible patient care and services. Another industry that's vulnerable is manufacturing, which has experienced an increase in IoT devices and systems, leading to a 76% increase in media attacks in 2022. The National Cybersecurity Alliance and CybeSafe have published a report looking at cybersecurity behaviors around the world. In the United States, the researchers found a significant majority now recognize multi-factor authentication, and, encouragingly, 70% within this group are actively using it to enhance their online security on a regular basis. However, despite these positive trends, there are concerns about access to adequate training. Based on the survey, only 44% of participants in the United States reported having access to cybersecurity training programs. A redacted version of a report by the Office of the Inspector General at the Department of Homeland Security has been released. The IG was looking into the TSA's formulation and enforcement of pipeline safety regulations after the May 2021 ransomware attack against Colonial Pipeline. The TSA responded with two regulations. One, Security Directive Pipeline-2021-01, titled Enhancing Pipeline Cybersecurity, issued on May 26, 2021, requires that operators of critical pipelines, those that carry hazardous fluids and natural gas, to designate a cybersecurity coordinator, report cyber incidents, and conduct a vulnerability assessment. The second regulation, Security Directive Pipeline-2021-02, titled Pipeline Cybersecurity Mitigation Actions, Contingency Planning, and Testing, issued on July 19th of that year, requires owners and operators of pipelines designated as critical to implement additional and immediately needed cybersecurity measures to prevent disruption and degradation to their infrastructure in response to an ongoing threat. The issue is in the oversight. The IG found that TSA, while it properly worked with stakeholders to develop the rules, did not effectively follow up to track compliance. The IG made three recommendations, all of them procedural enhancements designed to ensure proper oversight of operator compliance. The TSA has concurred with the IG's report and its recommendations, and states that improvements are expected to be on the way. Another Homeland Security Inspector General report found that three of the department's agencies, Customs and Border Protection, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and the Secret Service, did not adhere to department privacy policies or develop sufficient policies before procuring and using commercial telemetry data. The data purchase included mobile device geolocation information, and the IG found that they had not prepared to preserve the privacy of the individuals whose data they purchased. Ukraine is preparing for winter attacks against energy infrastructure, The Economist reports, a reprise of last winter's Russian counter-grid program. That program was dominated by kinetic attacks, and Ukraine expects more of the same over the coming months. 
but it's also working to increase its resilience in the face of cyber attacks against power generation and distribution, as these are also expected. And finally, as the 2024 elections approach, the U.S. intelligence community expects Russia to mount influence operations directed against U.S. support for Ukraine. The New York Times reports that Russian disinformation about NATO in general, and the U.S. and U.K. in particular, have been common during the war, but the next round of influence operations is thought likely to be directly disruptive in concept. The U.S. elections next year are expected to be targeted, with Russian operators seeking to support candidates unsympathetic to Ukraine and to denigrate candidates who favor continued U.S. support for Kyiv. Heavy use of influence-washing and troll farms directed by Russian intelligence services is expected. Coming up after the break, Ben Yellen on the Department of Commerce placing guardrails on semiconductor companies. And as part of our sponsored Industry Voices segment, Dave Bittner sits down with Nick Ascoli, founder and CTO at Fortress, to discuss the last year in data leaks. Stick around. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Nick Ascoli is founder and chief technical officer at Fortrace, whose offerings include an external attack surface management platform. In this sponsored Industry Voices segment, I ask Nick Ascoli to explain the differences between a data leak and a data breach and why that difference matters. There is a fundamental difference between a data leak and a data breach. While the outcome is, you know, overwhelmingly the outcome is the same, which is that an unauthorized third party has access to your data. The difference between a leak and a breach is a leak is basically when sensitive data is exposed publicly and accessible 
to the unauthorized third party. A breach is a successful attempt to steal sensitive data from you know an organization's digital infrastructure. Now that's not that's not Webster's uh, definition of a data leak or a data breach, but that's the definition I go on generally. So a common data leak scenario, the ones especially that we've seen in the last year, are like misconfigured web applications, um, a file system being made public, an API vulnerability that enables the accessing of data that's not intended for the user. A breach scenario are the ones we're familiar with and, and see you know very, very often in some of the larger you know, more notorious data breach news stories, which is an internal compromise, you know, uh, lateral movement and exfiltration using, you know, complex post-exploitation frameworks. So the common root of a leak is an accident, usually procedural or technical oversight. Occasionally it's malicious, but in a breach scenario, it's, it's overwhelmingly malicious. So that's the fundamental difference. For the folks that you work with who are, who are having success in preventing this? So what are the common elements, the, the, the things that people put in place to protect themselves? Pathway to success for ensuring your data isn't present in a data leak is really just doing exactly what the adversary does uh, yourself, which, you know, as, as our job, that's exactly what I do, is looking for customers' content in, in the public, really agnostic of source. It, a lot of people try and take the approach of, sort of grouping in data leak detection with um, third-party risk in the sense that you might monitor or uh, look at the public footprint of third parties. But the reality is, you know, third parties use third parties who use fourth parties. There's an infinite, you know, list of parties involved in the handling of any any one organization or any one application's data. Um, so what organizations should be doing is looking for their data completely agnostic of source. That is checking public, you know, open, indexed forms of data wherever they lie, which, you know, encompasses a, a truly wide variety of sources where data gets published online, whether it's by applications um, or by people, uh, and, and looking for your data within those. Because if you narrow your scope to where you think your data is, um, you know, odds are your, your data is in a lot more places uh, than you think, which is sort of the nature of that that fourth party risk phrase is that your data will end up in, you know, your third parties have third parties too, and your data is changing hands a lot. So to really find it in the wild, you have to kind of be agnostic of where you think it is and look for it where it actually lies. What are those conversations like for you? I mean, when, when, when you present to someone and say, look, this is what we found. These are the things is, is there generally surprise at the degree to which things are out there? Yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly been meetings where, um, you know, the meeting has had to be cut short for it turned into a fire drill right away. Something was out there that wasn't supposed to be, and that's an issue. Um, but overwhelmingly, what we look for, you know, we're, we're monitoring continuously. So these end up, our, our sort of notifications of, of, you know, us finding an email and password on a, you know, on a, one of the many public Git sites or a token present in a public Google doc for some reason, or, you know, any, any number of, of leaked things that we're looking for, these become sort of triage, like a normal internal incident would and, and baked into the sort of fabric of security operations, which is something that, you know, we've pushed for, for a long time is the weaving the sort of fabric of, of external reconnaissance and adversaries techniques for reconnaissance into 
traditional security operations such that the response can either be automated uh, with a SOAR in the case that it can, or is is triaged by the internal security team and and managed uh, the way it should be. These incidents usually involve a little bit more, you know, potential legal or PR consideration uh, due to their public nature. Um, but usually the remediation still falls in the hands of, of the security team. But there is, to your point, there's a lot of surprise. Um, there's really no shortage of uh, findings that that we end up coming up with of data that the customer truly could not have predicted ended up there. And that's because the the handle that an organization tries to get on where their data is going via, you know, subsidiaries, vendors, partners, consultants, um, their sort of known register of, of people who have their data often ends up looking a lot different in reality. Um, and places that their data end up um, while, you know, they would seem innocuous like a developer using GitHub, even though, you know, the organization is a Bitbucket shop. One, one misconfiguration of a repo making that proprietary code with hard-coded stuff in it public, which is an example we, we do see a lot, can have dramatic consequences despite it being, you know, one person engaging in a single shadow IT instance. So there are a lot of surprises, definitely. What are your recommendations for organizations who, who want to do a better job with this, who want to start down this path of, of getting a handle here? How should they begin? I think uh, starting from scratch, um, you should be looking at your external footprint through the lens of an adversary to the extent that you can. And there's a lot you can do without making an investment up front. Um, like rotating, if you're an enterprise, rotating defenders to search for this kind of data by hand. And I'm talking literally running Google dorks, you know, on some schedule, querying Shodan yourself, uh, querying, you know, looking on the on the Git sites for your code showing up, maybe perusing or, you know, having an experienced OSINT professional peruse criminal forums and marketplaces for the presence of your data to understand where it exists online. But, you know, do this by hand to understand the the scale that you're dealing with. And then to the extent that you can, automate it um, and look into tooling that can automate it for you to get ahead of these issues. You know, otherwise it's it's something that will pop up. You know, you'll get the sort of reconnaissance pages of your pen test report. Um, and that will be your picture of the outside. But the the issue is that's that's a snapshot. So having defenders, rotating defenders or offensive personnel, if you have it, doing this continuously enables you to be, A, much better prepared for those findings, and B, hopefully getting in front of those findings so that you don't find out six months later that this service was misconfigured and facing the public, uh, but you find out, you know, when it goes online. That's Nick Ascoli, founder and chief technical officer at Fortrace. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He is from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host on the Caveat Podcast. Hey, Ben. Hey, how are you, Dave? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, Interesting article here from The Record, which is a Recorded Futures news organization. Uh, This is written by Martin Matishak, and uh, it's about guardrails that uh, the folks at the Department of Commerce have put on semiconductor companies in the effort to increase national security here. What's going on here, Ben? 
So uh, last year, Congress enacted a bill called the Chips and Science Act, uh, and this was a bill, a bipartisan bill to boost domestic semiconductor manufacturing. Mm. Uh, it was kind of a considered a, a really big legislative accomplishment. Uh, this is something that's going to be good for our economic development and to be a leader uh, in the semiconductor field. And take away some of our uh, dependence on uh, other nations, and I suppose specifically China for the manufacturing of a lot of our semiconductors. Yeah, yeah. That's actually one of the reasons they passed this legislation is so that the United States can be that counterweight to China in advancing this type of uh, computing technology. Mm. So in that spirit, the U.S. Commerce Department has released their national security guardrails from any business that's seeking federal funding under this legislation. Hmm. Basically, the regulation would prohibit companies that are receiving funding under this bill from, quote, expanding material semiconductor manufacturing capacity in foreign countries of concern. Uh, And those foreign countries, namely, are China and Russia. Hmm. And that would be applicable for a period of 10 years. Okay. I think there are kind of two ways to look at it. One is that this is kind of a protectionist measure mm-hmm. uh, that is intended to boost U.S. industries. We don't want any of the funding, even in an indirect way, to go to Chinese and, and Russian entities. Mm-hmm. Now, a, a classic economist might tell you that these types of protectionist measures end up hurting us all in the long run. I'm not somebody who tends to think that way, so I understand why, uh, especially given the goal of the legislation, which was to boost U.S. manufacturing, that you'd need these national security guardrails. Mm. Uh, and then there's just the general national security concerns. I mean, semiconductors are going to be a part of our critical infrastructure. Having these types of chips, these chips are going to fuel things that we need to live and survive and to secure our country. Right. And putting any money in the hands of our entities controlled by our foreign adversaries uh, certainly present some of those long-term risks that we would really like to avoid. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I certainly understand it from that perspective. It also points out that um, it restricts them from engaging in certain joint research or technology licensing efforts. What what does that address here? So I just think it would be like going in on a contract together. Uh, so you have like a U.S. company who's bidding on money that's being released under this bill. Mm. Uh, if they were to go in on a bid with a Chinese or a Russian company, that would generally be prohibited under these regulations so that uh, we're fulfilling the goal of the bill, which is to mo- boost domestic manufacturing. You don't want a tiny U.S. company that's... I've, I'm, Granted, this is an absurd example, but yeah. <laughs> you don't want a tiny U.S. company that's just going to do like the grants management and then all the actual semiconductor production goes to a Chinese company. I uh, so I think they're trying to limit those types of partnerships. And there is an enforcement mechanism. Oh. Uh, basically, if you are found to be violating these guardrails, then you would have your own federal dollars revoked. And I don't think any company wants to see that happen. So. Yeah. Do you suspect that this is going to cause a a lot of heartache here, or or these seem to be reasonable restrictions? I don't think these are necessarily surprising. It might have some type of deleterious effect on the industry, just because prior to this point, China in particular has been such a leader in this field. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you might be uh, relinquishing some of your access to institutional expertise by having something like this, but I just think... It's still prudent for a couple of reasons. One, the purpose of the bill was uh, increasing domestic manufacturing of these of these chips. 
Uh, And two, I think we just have to recognize the major national security implications. We don't want to be beholden to some of these foreign countries. So I think you uh, any sort of negative effects that would come from these types of regulations are outweighed by uh, the national security imperative here. All right. Interesting stuff. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefings at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think about this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is me, with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by our editorial staff, our executive editors, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Trey Hester, filling in for Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. 
with insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Cyberwire. 